0: let's go ahead and um open with a word of prayer father in heaven as we gather together we thank you for this privilege and freedom that you've granted to us not only the freedom and privilege to gather together without fear but also the freedom and privilege to come to know you through your word which is a great grace which we don't deserve the freedom of privilege that you've granted us by inviting us to enter into your presence to um, to know you through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we not take this for granted. May we receive it with joy and thanksgiving. And may we be a people who, as we hear the testimony of your word, testimony of your servants of old, we, may we be a people who believe it, receive it in our heart, and seek to be obedient to your word in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue looking at uh, Christology and the subject of uh, the person and work of Christ, and our um, primary texts are going to be from the Gospel of John as we continue in this study. Um, and, and tonight, what we're going to do uh, is to consider the testimony of John the Baptist, particularly, starting from Chapter 1, again, of John's Gospel. Uh, I, I have, um, whether you care or not about titles, I have retitled this whole series, uh uh, Jesus and his witnesses, or something to that effect, because we're going to be looking at several, uh, several witnesses uh, who testify concerning the person and work of Christ in John's gospel. And uh, this week we're looking at John the Baptist himself, and next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll look at Moses um, and his particular witness um, concerning the person and work of Christ And uh, then we'll proceed from there, uh, looking more generally at Jesus' disciples, at at, uh, John the Evangelist, as John the Apostle, what he has to say. Um, But tonight we'll look at John the Baptist. And I want to remind you of some things that we've talked about as we've studied Luke uh, on Sunday mornings and as we've looked at Mark's gospel in Sunday school. Um, You'll be reminded of the priority of John the Baptist's ministry in terms of the gospel message Broadly speaking, you remember Mark chapter 1, how Mark begins with the word, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he goes directly into a narrative concerning the ministry of John the Baptist. He doesn't go into a narration of of Jesus' infancy, and he doesn't set forward a genealogy, but he places the beginning of that gospel witness, the beginning of the gospel testimony in John's ministry not because it's the chronological beginning or because he's unconcerned with, uh, um, with the eternal uh, realities of the gospel that, that God uh, really the beginning is in the being of God prior to creation, God's eternal purposes, but rather this is from a human perspective, the beginning of the gospel testimony. And you can see that um, from the perspective of Acts chapter 1, if I remind you of Acts one twenty two, when the apostles are choosing for themselves one of the disciples from among their midst to replace Judas as the twelfth apostle, they set forward, Peter sets forward some criteria in Acts one twenty two. One of the criterion for the selection of another apostle is that he had to be a witness of the things Jesus had done from John's baptism, from the baptism of John, unto up to uh, and after his resurrection. Resurrection of Christ, that is. And so you can see... Um, there is a priority to John's ministry, as we've seen from the Synoptic Gospels and from Acts, um, in terms of uh, where, how it's placed within the gospel testimony at the beginning of um, the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry. There's another reason for the priority of John's ministry, which we've spoken about in weeks prior, and that has to do with repentance. It has to do with the priority of repentance, and as I've said before, it's not an accident that. John came preaching and proclaiming a baptism of repentance prior to the coming of Christ. It accords with what God has revealed uh, concerning the priority of repentance throughout the scriptures. And we can think of texts like Isaiah 57, 15, and Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. We think of Psalm 51, David's prayer of repentance after he sinned with Bathsheba. We think of Moses' prophecies about Israel's Idolatry and their future repentance in Deuteronomy 30. The same types of prophecy in uh, Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8. Uh, we see examples in two of the great, most wicked, most wicked kings in Israel's history, Ahab and Manasseh, who yet became examples of repentance and the fact that God responds to one who truly humbles himself in repentance. The point that I'm simply making is over and over again: the Old Testament establishes the priority of repentance so this is another reason why john's ministry is so important in preparing the way for the christ he prepares the way for the lord to come by calling the people to repentance but tonight there's a third way in which we're going to see that john's uh, testimony is foundational is fundamental to the gospel proclamation and that has a lot to do with his credibility as a witness His credibility as a witness concerning the person and work of Christ. So let's look. um, What we're going to do tonight is going to look at a number of passages. And we're going to start again in the prologue. And I'm just going to remind you of what we read in the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, particularly what is said here about John the Baptist. And and, uh, just for clarity's sake, obviously it's going to get confusing. As I mentioned, John, the writer of this Gospel, And John the Baptist and so uh, sometimes or or probably more often than not I'll refer to the Apostle uh, the writer of this gospel as the evangelist or the Apostle and uh, so when I'm speak speak about John I'm primarily speaking about John the Baptist well in John chapter 1 we're reminded in verse 6 and following we read there was a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now the prologue is going to present John actually from two perspectives. It's going to focus our attention on his identity as a messenger, and it will also focus our attention on the content of his message by way of a summary that we'll see uh, a little bit down in verse 15. But here we see the identity of the messenger called into our focus. What we see about him is, uh, to start off, he's a man. And that might seem like a pretty trivial thing for us to observe. Uh, but John makes a point of it, that there was a man. And you could, if, you, if any of you have the New American S- uh, Standard Bible, it reads, there came a man. I think that, that is an important difference. Uh, the verb here rightly uh, indicates uh, one who comes on the scene. And uh, in the contrast that we noted last week when we looked at the first four verses, Uh, where we read uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God there is a static quality to that um, uh, that description we're we're talking about uh, the eternal being of the one who's called the word in those first four verses and that in the prologue is going to be in contrast to things that come to be right and so you have the word who was who always was even in the beginning he was with God he was God and uh, he still is Um, But then we have um, all things coming into being by him. And John, the the apostle, goes back and forth uh, between these verbs uh, that are more static of indication of a being with respect to the word, and his eternal being. And uh, it just seems like there's a contrast. Well, here John is, again, as the NASB or New English Translation puts it, I think rightly and well, is he came. A man came. He came to be. He arrives on the scene. He is a man, but he's a man who's distinct from the word who will become flesh. Um, But he does share some things in common that are important for us to know. This man is sent from God. And when we consider the testimony of the evangelists throughout this gospel, we're going to see, or if you were to sit down and read over the week, uh, you would see how frequently Jesus refers to himself as one sent by God. Or... In in a a similar way, he'll refer to the Father as the one who sent me. So Jesus is one who is sent from God, but here John shares that in common with Jesus, though his sending does have a different quality. He is sent. The the difference in quality has to do with the origin, right? Uh, John's sending is not a uh, sending from uh, eternity; is not a sending from heaven. Uh, his sending is, is uh, that, that would be, which would be typical of a man. We'll see that unfold in the gospel. But, uh, but there, at least we can know, though there's a difference in the quality of his sending, there is that shared thing in common, that both um, John and Jesus are sent by God. It also establishes him as a prophet. Right? The word prophet's not there, but the concept very much is. That's what a prophet is. Someone who's sent by God with a message. And we start to see that idea that he's a messenger sent by God as we uh, find it, discover that he's a witness. He came as a witness, and the particular witness is that he's to bear witness about the light. We already know the light uh, from, 1 John 1, or from John 1, 1 through 4 is another way that John speaks about the one he calls the word, the one in whom life is. So John comes as a witness to him that all might believe through him. And the evangelist is very careful to make us uh, aware, to remind us, that he is not himself the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So we start to see some of John's credentials in terms of uh, uh, his prophetic credentials as a a messenger sent by God, and I think it's important for us to note those things uh, because what we're really doing here as we embark on this study is we're not learning new things per se. I think you all know that Jesus is the Son of God. I think you all know that and believe that uh, He truly became incarnate, He truly became a man, that He's fully God and He's fully man. I think you all know His work, uh, what He came to accomplish in terms of saving us through His atoning death on the cross. What we're trying to do, rather, is to, if you will, show the work behind that. Just as you might be able to flip to the back of your math book and find the answer to a problem you you, uh, need to solve. Uh, It's very different from um, actually showing your work and demonstrating you actually know the math that goes into that solution. In the same way, I want to show you how it is that we know that these things are so. Right? Is it just a matter of that this is what our creeds say? And uh, it's been established uh, for some 1,700 years, and so now we We simply sign on the dotted line and push the I believe button. Or can we really demonstrate it from scripture? Of course, we can demonstrate it from scripture. And I want you to be able to do that um, without necessarily having to go into um, in-depth studies of grammar and and syntax and and learning Greek and and Hebrew and the like. Just seeing the bigger picture of what, what we're seeing here. And one of the ways in which we recognize or one of the ways in which we come to know Jesus for who he is is by receiving the testimony of credible witnesses. And John here is presented to us as a credible witness. He is sent for a particular purpose so that people might believe through him. and He comes as a witness. So scanning down the page um, in 1 John, to, uh, I'm sorry, in John chapter 1 uh, verse 5 to verse 15, we're also going to see, as I mentioned, his message come into focus. So we have the messenger, and we'll look a little bit more closely at that as we look at the narrative. But um, we also see his message come into focus. What is it that John is saying? And here, the apostle uses, his, uh, uses uh, John the Baptist's own idiom to summarize uh, what he's saying concerning Christ, concerning the light. What is the testimony he's bearing concerning the light? In John 1.15 he says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me so that phrase is going to prepare us for the opening of this narrative in the gospel we're going to hear John say it again Um, but I want you to try and you know put yourself in the in the uh, imagine yourself as someone who's there at the time when John is saying this Uh, don't don't hear it I mean try not to hear it right now at the moment knowing what you know from the first 14 verses of John. Try to hear it as someone who comes to the Jordan to be baptized by him, and then you hear him say, after me comes one who was before me, I'm sorry, who, who uh, after, so one is coming after me, who is before me, and who ranks before me, and um, just let that, the strangeness of that saying hit you, right? It's helpful maybe even to to draw upon what we know of some other texts in scripture that uh, inform informers concerning the way that a uh, first century Jew would think about these issues, right? They didn't, the pre- precedence and priority had a lot to do with who came first, uh, had a lot to do with age, right? You think of, uh, in, in a family, which son was the, uh, the um, had the priority in terms of the inheritance and in terms of the patriarchal um, authority as it being passed down in the family? It was the firstborn, the one who came first. And any deviation from that, we see a number of deviations from that in Scripture, but any deviation from that is a bit strange. You can think of what Jesus says when he comes into Jerusalem, as Matthew and Mark and Luke all record it, and he poses this question, quoting from Psalm 110, to the um, people who are questioning him. uh, You know, who is David talking about in Psalm 110 when he says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And the answer is the Christ. And then, you know, well, they all recognize the Christ is David's son. So the riddle is this. How is it that David in the Spirit calls his son Lord? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit within the paradigm uh, that you would have if you were one of these early um, listeners to John's message. How is it that one coming after him is, in fact, greater than him? And yet that's his testimony. At least that's the summary that we get right off the bat of the message that he came to proclaim about the light. Well, let's think again. Let's, let's, so here we, got the, we have the two ideas Then We have the, the credibility of the messenger that we're going to consider, and we're going to have the content of his message that we're going to consider. Let's come back to the credibility of the messenger. We have two, um, there are two logical uh, frameworks by which we judge the credibility of a human messenger as scripture gives it to us. I've talked a lot about these, so let me just ask the question and see how well you remember. Uh, what are the two, um, the two ways in which you evaluate the credibility of a human messenger uh, in terms of the truth value of their testimony, biblically speaking? Karen? Yeah, so... That's right. So Deuteronomy 18, uh, here in 21, 22... In the broader section, Moses is talking about a prophet who is to come. And he says, uh, you know, so in this prophecy that there's going to be a coming prophet, there seems to be an implication that there may in fact be many prophets who follow him. Um, and, uh, and that's, of course, what we see play out in Israel's history. So if you're an Israelite living through the various centuries, you're constantly going to be looking for prophets to come, and you're constantly going to be challenged to evaluate, is this prophet true or false? And there are many false prophets who arise as well in Israel's history, particularly in the era of the kings. We looked at one some uh, months ago from Jeremiah 28, where Jeremiah confronted Hananiah using the test given in Deuteronomy 18. So there's, what, what's the test that Moses gives? How do you, uh, just say it again, Karen, how do you evaluate the true prophet and distinguish him from the false prophet? Precisely. The, the, does his, do his prophecies come true? And of course, one might might question that and say, well, gee, if they're predicting things that are centuries in the future, you don't really have the ability to evaluate the truth value of that prophet's testimony. But the reality is, if you see the unfolding narrative, um, that the uh, the prophets always. Um, they very often make multiple predictions that are both near and far term right so they might predict something that takes place within three years or uh, you think of Isaiah predicting that uh, before uh, his his child is weaned um, Assyria is going to come and ravage the land and lo and behold that's exactly what happens um, there are things like that and that then establishes the credibility of this particular prophet so that when he makes Further predictions, um, you expect those things also to come true because you recognize he really is credentialed by God Himself. God really sent him. And there's this bottom line impl- Im- implicit understanding, implicit assumption. All that God says, we trust, right? We know that God is perfect. So if He speaks, His word must be perfect, right? We know that God is true, that he is uh, light without darkness, as 1 John 1.5 says, that he cannot lie, as Titus 1.2 says. And so we know that when he speaks, his word is true. And so if he sends a messenger, that messenger is to be trusted. If we can rightly evaluate, okay, this person really is sent by God, as John has presented John the Baptist to us. We're going to see that That very test used in John chapter 10 uh, to evaluate the credibility of John's ministry. Uh, But we'll come to that in due course. So there's the first test. Is does his word come, does he make predictions that do come true? It's actually more important than um, signs and wonders. Uh, We see in the book of Acts, the apostles, their credibility is established on the basis of signs and wonders that God works through them. Um, But even more fundamental, I think, from uh, from Moses' words in Deuteronomy are the, uh, is that predictive prophecy argument. But it does really hinge on um, having near-term and far-term predictions. We can do the same thing, right? We can look at Isaiah, for instance. We can see that Isaiah, long before um, the Babylonian exile, predicted that uh, by name that Cyrus, a coming king of Persia, would release the exiles and send them back from um Uh, back from exile to the land of promise. That you find in Isaiah 44 and 45, uh, Cyrus uh, named precisely. Uh, In fact, it's so specific, so accurate, that skeptical secular scholars today will allege it wasn't really written by Isaiah, it was written after the fact. Um, They don't have any really good evidence to to make that claim. But um, it's a very, why? Because it's a very persuasive, powerful claim, right? And how do you refute that you have to deny that it was really written prior to the fact. Um, but we know, of course, that, uh, okay, so I'll put that aside. We, we can, we can uh, look at those things and see um, that they should also encourage us to say, okay, if Isaiah said that and he spoke rightly, I believe all that he says. Because there are things that, in Isaiah, that Isaiah spoke from our perspective that are still uh, to be fulfilled. But we trust them. So there's the first test is predictive prophecy. What's a second way in which you can evaluate... And this is not just for prophets. It's for anyone. Key on that terminology of witness or testimony. What's a second way in which you can evaluate the credibility of a messenger? A human messenger. How would you do it? in our, Just in your own context. Huh? That's right. Yeah, so corroborating testimony, right? Corroborating testimony. And here... This depends upon the, um, an assumption of people being trustworthy witnesses, which should be, you should be able to assume that in an Israelite context. we will see as John's Gospel unfolds that um, there are some people who demonstrate themselves to be untrustworthy witnesses who are uh, deceitful and liars. But um, when you think of the, tenth, the Ninth Commandment, um, even the way it's phrased, it's not phrased, thou shalt not lie. That's the way we usually gloss it. But what it really says is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Of course, it implies that we ought to be honest in our dealings with others. But it's stated in terms of the, uh, the most consequential uh, act of truthfulness or uh, deceit that a person can engage in. Because if I bear false witness in, in the system of uh, justice against somebody, uh, they will bear consequences if my testimony is trusted, right? So from the very beginning, Israel is supposed to be established as a, as a nation where people are held to a standard of truthfulness, and that would make the cause of justice possible because you have people who are trustworthy witnesses. Even within that context, the possibility of a false witness is certainly acknowledged. Um, and you just go back to Genesis, right? And you think of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's obvious that Uh, the possibility of bearing false witness is possible, uh, not just outside of Israel. Look at Joseph's own brothers and what they did to him. Right, We see false witness as a a real problem. Um, But uh, the law uh, establishes rules for that. We don't need to go into all the details. But you can find in Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19 um, that uh, uh, you needed corroborating testimony. It wasn't sufficient. You couldn't put someone to death without two or three witnesses. And there are also guidelines for how to investigate uh, a witness. And if you found that person to be deceitful, that person would have severe consequences brought upon him. So all of this creates a context where people are expected to value uh, truthfulness, where people are expected to bear true witness. And um, when you have people who then demonstrate themselves to be trustworthy, people who follow those principles in their lives and order their way their lives in a way that is honest and truthful um, then you are predisposed to trust them and then when you've got corroborating witness right you have multiple witnesses who all bear the same witness bear the same testimony and they're all trustworthy you should be predisposed to believe the things that they say so that's what we're looking at in this study is we're looking at various witnesses and uh, people whom we should trust, right? So we think about John. What are some things about John the Baptist, as you just think about what you know about him, that ought to commend him to us as a trustworthy individual? Well, sure, the circumstances of his birth, right? And we have, you know, so you know, Luke testifies, and he's, of course, recounting the testimony of others as he's aggregated it and gathered it, and we... we well, it does. I mean, we, we probably can presume that Mary had a big um, influence in the infancy accounts. That she, um, maybe Mary knew from Elizabeth what had happened in those events, and then she shared those details with Luke, and Luke recorded them in his gospel. Um, and we trust we would trust Mary. We're predisposed to trust her, and she testifies, among other things. Uh, we're, I'm assuming that she's the source of that. It could be others who were present, but. Um, uh, whoever it was, we assume this is someone trust, who's trustworthy. Luke has done the vetting, as he talks about in Luke 1, 1 through 1-4. He's followed things closely. He's put a lot of energy into making sure that he's got good information. Wouldn't have put it in there. And he testifies um, that uh, John is filled with the Spirit from his birth, right? Uh, that Gabriel, an angelic witness, right? Someone who stands in the presence of God, also bears witness that John is going to come as a prophet sent by the Lord, fulfilling all kinds of prophetic words. And so here are people who we are disposed to trust, whose testimony, uh, people and, and uh, an angel, whose testimony Luke has compiled and gathered, and they testify to John's credibility. So absolutely, there's, um, there's value 100% in that. What else do, just do we know about a character, right? If, we, if you were going to go into court, a court of law and um, you were, uh, you, you know, you had a, a witness who came and testified against you, maybe you were accused of something you didn't do, and somebody bore witness against you, your defense attorney would not be a good attorney unless that person tried to destroy the credibility of that witness, right? So you would say, well, you know, this person can't really be trusted. They, uh, they cheated on their income taxes. Or you'd, you'd dig up some dirt and find out why the witness can't be trusted. On, uh, on the flip side, if the witness is a credible person who's an honorable, upstanding person, nothing against them, it becomes easier to trust that person. So think about John again, what we know about John that commends him to us as a trustworthy witness. What are some things that we, other things that we know about him, his character? Go ahead, Becca. That's right. That's right. Yeah, self promotion would certainly, if he were a self promoter, we'd say, ah, I'm not sure about this guy. But he's the opposite of a self promoter. That makes us think, hey, this guy's got some credibility to him. What, uh, what were you going to say, Lori? He's humble. He's humble, absolutely. Yeah, you trust someone who's got some humility, some real, genuine humility. Karen? Hey, uh, hmm. Um, That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that a person who knows the scriptures, who is you know, who understands and knows how to apply it, and to situate it in in terms of um, you know, de- depending on the hearers and what they're capable of understanding based on their knowledge, is able to situate the scriptures before him. He demonstrates himself as a person who knows God's word and what to expect on that basis. So, for people who uh, like us who believe God's word, who've received God's word, that commends him to us as someone to be trusted, his knowledge and ability to appropriate scripture. Uh, Of course, apologetically in the world, with some skeptics, it may not work, but uh, that's not who we're talking to right now. We're talking with people who believe God's word. So John is a a credible witness, and we can see different ways. Even just think about the fact that he, um, as he proclaims his message of repentance, and, and Herod imprisons him for it. Uh, John sticks with his guns. He stands on his word and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't uh, abandon the preaching that God has commissioned him to preach. You, you know, you, you really know what someone believes um, when that, you know, the rubber meets the road in that way. So these are different things that commend him to us as a uh, credible witness. Well, let's look a bit more at his testimony then. In chapter 1, we're going to read verse 19. Uh, all the way down to 37. And uh, we won't reflect on every, every detail of the text, uh, but I do want to look at um, what it is that he does in his testimony and how his, his testimony, both concerning himself and concerning Christ, helps us to uh, more fully understand Christ's person. Notice these two things as I read from verse 19 to verse 37 that John does. He de- self, he's self-deprecating. He's humble, as we pointed out. He obscures himself, and he promotes Jesus. So look at verse 19 and following. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If You are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one. You do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And two, two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. We'll stop there. Um, but let's just uh, let's stop for a moment and, and uh, think through these, the, the broad sweep of this narrative. Here, uh, the first thing that happens is um, some of the Jews send priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John who he is. Now, John, uh, the evangelist, will, will refer to Uh, A group as the Jews in this uh, letter. Usually he's speaking about those um, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, priests, Levites, different um, members of the Jewish community in this first century setting uh, uh, who did not respond in faith to the the, uh, proclamation of Christ. Uh, Sometimes people today will read that language um, through 21st century eyes as if uh, John is somehow anti-Semitic, um, and I just want to uh, point that out—that that, that, that uh, that's not really a faithful or, or uh, fair reading to John. Uh, of course, he himself is ethnically Jewish, and it's not fair to hold him accountable for uh, what has gone on in the next 19 centuries. But that's the way John uh, speaks. He refers to this group as the Jews, um, but the, generally, what we see is he's usually referring to this group of uh, who have rejected, uh, um, rejected Christ, not necessarily to all of ethnic Israel. In any case, they come and they say, who are you? And uh, he confesses and doesn't deny. So we go down this list. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And they say, who are you? Is anything about that striking to you that's surprising or unexpected or you want to know why does John deny these things? Any thoughts? Yeah, he's denying it. And I think the particular thing that strikes me is when the question comes up, are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. And um, you think, well, you want to say, well, then why do you dress like him, John? (laughs) And of course, they don't ask that. You want to say later on when Jesus in Matthew, Matthew records this in Matthew 17, explicitly says he is Elijah who is to come. Uh, he doesn't say it quite that way, but he says uh, uh, the disciples, uh, Matthew records that they clearly understood that he's saying that John fulfills this Old Testament expectation that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. What is John doing? There's this um, if you don't know what a mem is, a mem is like a picture that goes around the internet. Uh, usually, they, people caption it, meme. meme, mem. Well, you know, there's. Uh, I'm from Cleveland. This is how we pronounce it. Um. <laughs> meme. It doesn't matter. Um, so, the uh, the point is, is um, there's this one that goes around and it says, "Tell me something without saying, you know, that that thing, right?" And usually, it captions a picture where someone reveals their ignorance, like, tell me you don't know what you're talking about without saying you don't know what you're talking about, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, well, I'm not saying that what's going on here is negative, but, uh, but in the same way, yeah, John is denying, yeah, I'm not Elijah. Even though we know from Christ that really he does fulfill the expectation of Elijah who is to come, right? Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, I will send you Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And Jesus tells us, that's John. John fulfills that. John dressed like him. He must have been aware that he, you know, what, of what he was doing when he put on that camel's hair garment. So what's going on here? Well, look at what, how John deprecates himself. Think about this. They come to him and they want to know about, who are you? And John's answer is essentially, just a voice. Just a voice. But of course, he is quoting Isaiah. Not just any voice. But at the end of the day, he's just a voice in the wilderness. It's not, in other words, it's not really about me. Um, You know, I'm just a voice in the wilderness. And so what really matters is not me as the messenger, but who I'm preparing the way for. And that is where you see that John is always kind of uh, diminishing himself. I'm a voice in the wilderness, um, crying out in the wilderness, saying, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So they want to know, okay, why are you baptizing that and what's going on there? Um, They would have been very concerned with ritual washings, right? You can go back to Mark 7, for instance, and you see in Mark 7 how uh, Mark tells us they, they wash pots and pans and have all these different ways of washing things. So they hear about this guy out in the wilderness who's baptizing people, and they rightly associate this with cleansing of some sort, a ritual kind of cleansing, and they want to know, oh, Maybe this is something. Maybe they're wondering: Can we add this to our our, our retinue of, of ritual cleansings? Maybe they're wondering: Is he, um, is he kind of you know stomping in our grounds? Is he stealing our our um, you know? Is he in our turf? What, what's going on here? But they're probably interested in the ritual nature of this cleansing. And so John again, he diminishes what he's doing, and in this case t- instance. He does it by explicitly exalting what Christ will do. Yes, he's baptizing. Yes, it's an extraordinarily important thing that he's doing. It's a very significant thing because what he's doing is a fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. But At the end of the day, it pales in significance to what the one who comes after him will do. He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie, he describes. This one as he'll say later on in the text, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I want to reflect on that for a moment. Let me read some texts from the Old Testament here. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, you've heard me read this before, it's very significant in my, um, it, it, it should be very significant in all of our understanding of the expectations concerning Christ from the Old Testament. Here in Isaiah 11, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, Spirit of wisdom and understanding, Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah also says in Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And again, in Isaiah sixty-one, one, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to bind up the, um, to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and so on from there. And you recall from Luke that those are the words that Jesus read the outset of his ministry in the Nazareth synagogue and said these are fulfilled in your hearing so Jesus clearly understood those words be about him. The thing I'm keying on is in each case in Isaiah and, and there's three sections in Isaiah and in each case he highlights the spirit uh, resting upon or the empowerment of the spirit in this one who is to come it's really what binds all these pictures together so we understand that the Christ In chapters 1 through 39, the coming king is the same as the servant in chapters 40 through 55. He is the same as the Lord himself in in chapters 55 through uh, the end of the book. And this is a key signal for John as well. As John keys upon um, his testimony concerning the spirit descending upon Christ. He says, he's like, look, I didn't know Jesus, right? I didn't know who he was, To what degree John knew him personally as his cousin, we can't say. But in terms of the knowing him as the one who is to come, John did not know that, as he testifies. But God, who sent John, had said to him, had communicated to him, as a prophet, the one whom you see the Spirit rest upon, this is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. Right? And so that brings in a whole host of other Old Testament texts which speak of the outpouring of the Spirit that will happen in the age to come, in the eschatological age. And this is seen in Isaiah, seen in Ezekiel, seen in Joel chapter 2, which Peter quotes at Pentecost uh, to explain uh, what, what happens as the Spirit is poured out on the early church. Um, Jesus is the one who is baptizing with the Spirit. What I want to note in, in that connection as I draw those things together is as the Old Testament speaks of this outpouring of the Spirit, it's always the Lord Himself who says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. It's, it's um, God Himself who says He will do this. And that makes perfect sense, right? We're talking about the, out, the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon uh, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This must be a thing that God himself does. And yet here John comes proclaiming one who is a man. He clearly identifies him a man saying in verse 30, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. that He might be revealed to Israel. John identifies him as a man, and yet he's a man who is before me and ranks before me. And then he talks about how he saw the Spirit descend on him in fulfillment of not only what Isaiah has said, but what God himself said directly to John. And at, when he concludes that testimony, he says in verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So you see very clearly in John's own testimony. It's not just a matter of repentance. That's a crucial, important part of his testimony. But it's also a matter of highlighting who Jesus is. When Jesus comes on the scene, John is that first witness sent by God, that final prophetic witness, and the first uh, witness in Jesus' ministry who testifies, this man is not just a man. He's not just like me. right? John's a man. We're all... Human beings, we're men and women, and we have um, such a nature as is typical of men and women. We are born, we die, we come into existence, we have not existed forever. Jesus has a like nature in that sense. He is a human being, a, fully, a person who is fully man. But as we read in John 1:14, he became flesh. But he already was the word, right? This is the key, uh, you know. Under uh, comp- component of Christology of our Christology is understanding that the one we confess as Christ. He has no beginning or end. He becomes a man, but he doesn't come into being in that moment. And that's what then makes sense of what John is saying. So we don't have to hear it like someone who's hearing it for the first time there on the banks of the Jordan. We can hear it like people who know First John chapter one through uh, or John one one through four, right? in the beginning was the Word, and we know that this is the Word who became flesh. This is Jesus Christ. This is the one who is both a man who comes after John and the Son of God who was before him and ranks before him. And The basis, this first basis for, un, for believing that is the credible testimony of John, the witness that he has born. This is God who sent me, spoke to me. What he said is consistent with the prophetic witness that we find from Isaiah. We find from Ezekiel, from Joel, from many other prophets. It's consistent with what we know from Scripture. So we have that multitude of witnesses, that principle there. We have prophets who are credible on the basis of their word coming to pass. We should believe them. Now there's one more thing, I think, that we ought to talk about, and that has to do with um, the work of Christ, what John says about the work of Christ here. He does point to his work of Uh, baptizing with the Spirit. And we've seen in other places that he points to his work uh, as the judge. In uh, Matthew and and in Luke particularly, he's the one who stands on the threshing floor with his winnowing fork in his hand, the one who baptizes not just with the Spirit, but also with fire. And John points forward to that, uh, it seems, when he speaks about his uh, baptism with the Spirit. But John also calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think what we're seeing here is um, perhaps a bit of John speaking better than he knew. So in, the, in some of the literature that was written between um, the end of the Old Testament and the, the opening of the New Testament, there's some language that uh, speaks of one who, the Lamb of God, not in terms of a sacrificial lamb, but in terms of a lamb who stands in judgment at the end of the age, right? And we can, you can think of uh, the way that John will speak in Revelation. When we hear, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has conquered, he is worthy to open the, the, the scrolls that unroll the rest of history then in Revelation 5. And then John looks and he sees a lamb as if he were slain. He is worthy, right? And here's not he, he's been slain, but here's the picture of the lamb who's going to stand in judgment at the end of history. Um, and I think perhaps that's what John might have in his mind. We can't know for certain, certain what he's thinking. We can only know what he said. But when we think about what we read in Matthew and Mark and Luke about how John's a bit surprised as Jesus' ministry unfolds and he's wondering, are you you the one? He starts to have doubts. He seems to be thinking about judgment a lot and not necessarily uh, having a great clarity on how Christ is going to take away the sins of the world. But we need to distinguish between what John the Baptist knew as he made that proclamation and what John the evangelist Understood as he appropriated those words that John the Baptist spoke in this gospel. In other words, there's the, the, we allow the possibility that John the Baptist spoke better than he knew as he testified to the work of Christ as the, rightly, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here then, he doesn't point, to get, point forward with perfect clarity to the atoning work of Christ and to, um, Christ as the Passover Lamb um, in terms of being very precise and explicit in how he does all that. But he does point forward to him in that way as that one who will do those things. He will accomplish our salvation. We're going to see the work of Christ unfolded a bit more as John's gospel unfolds. But at the very least, I want to make note of that fact that John does point forward to those things, um, to what Christ will accomplish. Well, I I do need to bring this to a close. And so I won't read um, other texts. I'll encourage you to do that on your own. But um, this is not the last we'll hear from we, you would hear from John, the Baptist in this gospel. In chapter three, after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in verse 22, uh, you can read again, and you'll see those same themes crop up. John uh, humbles himself, he deprecates himself, and he exalts Christ. And he encourages others, even his own disciples, to do likewise as they see. Uh, Jesus' ministry seemed to take off from a human perspective. John says, "I rejoice. I rejoice in this. This is this is what I'm here for." Uh, the imagery is of a of a bridegroom and his groomsmen. The groom and the groomsmen. Uh, the, the wedding is uh, the main event. Is the groom and the bride, and the groomsmen are just there to facilitate things. That's what John presents himself as. He rejoices. Uh, this is about me. It's, time, it's not about me it's, it's time for me to step off the scene in a, any case. So you see that same idea um, as people confront him with, uh, with uh, Jesus' star shining brighter. I will end with this in, in, it, um, skipping past what Jesus says about John's ministry in chapter five, and going to chapter 10. I did say that his credibility as a witness uh, is established in the way that Moses would have it uh, have us understand prophet's credibility. You can see that in chapter 10, in verse 40. Uh, hereafter, Jesus has done many signs, right before he does a, one final sign by raising Lazarus from the dead. In verse 40 of chapter 10, he went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. So we're immediately reminded of John again. In verse 41, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign." But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So you see that the people now testify to John's credibility as a prophet. And they apply the test rightly. At least those who believe in him seem to be rightly judging John's testimony. The things he said about the Christ, the things he said about Jesus, they are true. They prove true. So they believe. I think we ought to think in the same way as we consider John's own testimony. We consider our faith and our belief that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God who is the Savior of the world, that he is a man who came after John while preceding him and ranking before him. He is the Son of God, the one upon whom the Spirit rested, the one who would pour out the Spirit on all flesh, and he is the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We can believe all those things with certainty and confidence because God has given us credible witnesses who have testified to this truth. We'll continue to look at other ones as we unfold John's gospel. Let me uh, ask if there are questions before we close in prayer. Questions or comments? Yeah, no, these are his disciples. So, you know, in, in chapter 1, you, you certainly see that some of, a couple of his disciples, as we read in verse 37, are, are, they, they get the point. As he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They say, okay, we ought to go follow this guy now. And they, they get it. But not all of his disciples do that, um, at least not at first. And in the way that chapter 3 begins, that, that section in 22, there's a dispute that arises. Just as a aside, that's interesting. I think it's interesting to read that in connection with Mark's gospel. Um, when you look at Mark um, early on in the gospel, there's a similar dispute uh, question that arises where some of John's disciples come to, um, uh, in ch- chapter 2, verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. What's interesting there is Jesus uses a very similar analogy with the bride and the bridegroom or the bridegroom and the groomsman. And, and it's, a, it's a little bit different application. But uh, it makes you wonder, perhaps, is are these, you know, these different perspectives kind of contemporaneous? This is a period of time where there's still an adjustment going on, and people are still figuring out. Um, how, what to make of this Jesus and what to make of this John. John is still on the scene. He's still baptizing. He has not yet been put in prison by Herod. He is going to fade off the scene soon. It's not happened yet. And in that transition period, not everyone's quite grappled with his message. Not everyone's quite understood it. He's still doing his ministry. It's like the exchange in, in a relay race where both runners are holding the baton at, like for a brief minute. And um, you can think of it that, that way. John is passing the baton to Jesus, but he hasn't quite let go yet. Just because of the nature of the race. Um, and so you, in, the, in that process, you see a lot of misunderstandings. Just like you see in Mark 2. There's some, hey, uh, what do you make? They're fasting, you're not fasting. In John 3, it's, uh, hey, what do you make? They're baptizing, we're baptizing, but people are all going to them now. Should they, you know, they're, they're trying to figure this out. Um, and John does, he does correct them. He does point them in the right direction when he says, um, joy, this joy of my, mine is now complete and I, he must increase, I must decrease. He actually says to them, you yourselves bear me witness. You, you're, you're, you're now the witnesses to me that you, under, you heard what I said when I testified about him. Because they—they way they say, the one you spoke about is like, okay, you're telling me that you heard what I said. I remember what I said. Uh, he must increase, right? So he does he does seem to re uh, redirect them properly. Uh, but it just kind of takes time in that in that kind of confusing stage of that interchange. Does that answer the question? Does it help? Yeah that's probably why when those men was your and you got followers following who are you? yeah. Who are you? I mean it's He is dressed like Elijah, and it's very apocalyptic in a lot of ways. One other thing I'll say, I've I've been thinking about this a bit, is Daniel's prophecies about kingdoms to come are quite specific. He prophesies four kingdoms as he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the statue and the four materials. And if you're a faithful Israelite reading the book of Daniel, you're thinking, okay, that first kingdom was clearly Babylon. They're gone. The second kingdom was clearly Medo-Persia or Persia or Medes. Whichever one, they're both gone. Third kingdom was clearly Greece, gone. Okay, so we're in the fourth kingdom. Here's Rome. It matches the, uh, the uh, picture. And what did Daniel say in that period of the fourth kingdom? The Lord will set up a kingdom. You know, you have the rock, it grows into a mountain. He says, a kingdom that will never end. So if you're living during the Roman occupation of Israel, you best believe you're thinking, and you're, you're aware of Daniel, you best believe you're thinking, could happen in my life. I shouldn't it happen in my life right? So a lot of messianic expectation in Israel at that time, to be sure. So John shows up, and you, you're probably thinking, what's happening right now? And you wouldn't be wrong. Um, anything else? Any other comments? Well, let's, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll have some corporate prayer as well, too. Father, we thank you for your word and for your testimony and the surety of it. Lord, Day by day, we ask that you would strengthen and increase our faith. That you would cause us to grow in our, um, in our trust that all that you have spoken through your prophets, through your apostles, in your holy word, that it indeed is true, and it is for our good, and it is for our glory. So help us to hear, help us to receive, help us to believe, help us to obey. In Jesus' name we pray.